Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, the two of us often talk about taking a trip to see all our, our listeners across the country. We want to go across Canada. We all want to go to Scandinavia, obviously, mm-hmm. um, because it's the most friendly place to women, if you listen to that podcast. Um, you know, we just have all these ideas about places to go and spots of women's history to see and, you know, things like that. I want to add another element to it. Go for it. I think we should do the trip by motorcycle. Oh, Yeah. But I think that what I want is to get in a motorcycle with a sidecar, and I want to ride in the sidecar. Ooh, that means I get to drive the motorcycle? Yeah. Absolutely. Let's do it. How do you feel about that idea? I think it's great. I think it would be great also because I think that we would uh, upend some traditional stereotypes about whether women can ride motorcycles. That's right. And that is the topic of today's podcast. Women and motorcycles. Yes. Although I wanted to talk just exclusively about our cross-country trip, we are going to get to some facts about women and motorcycles. Why don't we break it down by numbers to start out with, Molly? Motorcycles today, and then maybe we can put it in reverse. (laughs) Oh, Kristen. (laughs) There's more where that came from. You're in the driver's seat on this one. Go for it. All right. So, well, this is from 2006, but it's probably fairly accurate. It's from Christian Science Monitor. This is Women Bikers by the Numbers. We have 635,000 women owning motorcycles in the U.S., which is about 18% of all American motorcycle operators. More than half these women are married, which is something we'll get to a little while later. And 28% of women motorcyclists also have college degree or postgrad degrees. We got some smart ladies on these hogs. And 42 is the median age of women motorcyclists. So it seems like it's usually something that women adopt a little bit later in life. And as we will also discuss in more detail, women are really becoming Harley Davidson's most coveted 
demographic. American women are the fastest growing part of the motorcycle business. Mm -hmm. You will find story after story, as we did when we were researching this, about the ways in which Harley Davidson is trying to woo these female bikers. Yeah, there was an article in Bloomberg not too long ago that was talking about how Harley has really, really tried to market to women. And in July of this year, it introduced a new bike called the Super Low, which was designed specifically to appeal to women in, and first-time riders. And it has the lowest seat in Harley's, uh, of Harley's entire lineup. And it makes it a lot easier to ride. And it's also 150 pounds lighter than the average bike. Very cool. And yeah, they adjust ham- handlebars and windshields. So it's more, more comfortable just for smaller riders. Yeah. Since a lot of women are smaller than men. But it's not just redesigning bikes or, you know, putting a few rhinestones on a motorcycle helmet. They are, you know, actively pursuing women by having these parties, mm-hmm. um, in the garage where they teach women, you know, what safety, safety tips, how to care for a bike, how to pick up a bike when it's, you know, leaning over on the sidewalk. Yeah. I didn't even really think about that. You know, if you got a bicycle, you can just <laughs> pop it right up. Uh, a motorcycle, a little bit different. They are a little bit bigger. They're what, like 500 pounds or something. They're big. But these, but these parties are female, women only. Yeah. They kick and- all the guys out of the shop. And it's just a time to, you know, ask all these questions you might have had when you're riding on the back of a motorcycle mm-hmm. uh, that you want to know before you get in the driver's seat. Because since about 1948, that's how most Harley ads have put, that's where they've put the women is in the back seat. Right. And this marketing has paid off because in 1995, women only comprised about 2% of Harley's market. And now it's up to 12. I mean, it's still not a huge market share, but still that's a 10% jump. It's the biggest, biggest part of the thing. I mean, like, like uh, this is sort of like the car podcast where they've sold all the motorcycles they think they can to men. And so now they're kind of going after the women, although they were the ones who started these ads that put women on the backseat to begin with. Right. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot because... You know, if you look back in history, if we put it in reverse, so to speak, mm-hmm. it's it's not like women were never riding motorcycles. They have kind of a long history. Right. In the early 20th century, motorcycles were a vehicle of independence, if you will. And a lot of women riders became these pioneers and garnered a lot of publicity for taking these very impressive motorcycle rides around the country. At a time when America had, you know, not as many highways, so mm-hmm. it was a more treacherous trip. Let's, let's talk about some of these, these women motorcyclists, cause they got some pretty cool stories. Well, in the 1915, we've got a mother-daughter team, and I love this. Their names are Avis and Effie Hotchkiss. And they went from Brooklyn all the way to the West Coast on a three-speed V-twin bike with a sidecar. So this, I, this might have been where I got the idea for yeah, the sidecar. Yeah. But I like these Hotchkiss women because they are they are nothing if not you know intuitive about fixing things. Because in New Mexico, they run out of spare inner tubes. So they cut a blanket down to the right length and just roll it and shape it in a donut and keep going. Like, these women don't need, they don't need a mechanic to keep them. Keep them going. And these two women, the mother-daughter duo, are the first women to cross the United States on a motorcycle. The Hotchkisses. They did it. Now let's talk about Vivian Bales, Kristen, because she is one cool, one cool biker chick, if I may use that term. Right. She was born in 1909 in Florida, but moved to Albany, Georgia, which is our state of residence. What, what? And, uh, she was very proud of the fact that she learned to ride a motorcycle considering she was only 5'2 and weighed 95 pounds. Wow. Now, she taught dance, and then she took all the money that she saved from teaching dance and bought Harley-Davidson. And at the age of 20, 
Okay, it's 1929. She rides a motorcycle from Albany, Georgia to Milwaukee and back for about 5,000 miles. And she called herself the Enthusiast Girl after the Harley-Davidson magazine. And because she um, got sort of permission to call herself this, Harley-Davidson kind of took care of her on her trip. They, you know, she'd stay with the the Harley-Davidson dealers Mm -hmm. in their hometowns, and they would ride with her for long sections at a time. And, uh, you know, they would arrange for her to get press in all the places that she was going. Um, and it's one of the best documented road trips of all time. And we were actually on a, a site called Women Writers Now. You can read sort of her her remembrances of her journey. And I think my favorite part is when she describes meeting Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. She stops in D.C. And, um, you know, if you read her, you can just hear the southern accent and the southern attitude coming through, in my opinion. And I can't do accents the way Kristen can. But when she's writing about meeting President Hoover, she says, I didn't vamp on him because Mrs. Hoover was president, was present. So, uh, Whoa, Vivian, she was gonna, gonna lay some flirting out on the president if the wife hadn't been there. But, you know, she, she just writes about how, you know, it was, it was great to meet all these people, all these small town folks that kept her going. And she said, I'm glad I got to be in so many papers because we need more press on women riding motorcycles. So even back then in the 1920s, it was a unique thing to do. Yeah. But I don't think it was as unique as it might have gotten a little bit later on. Well, now, if we're going to talk about unique, Vivian Bales, smart cookie. Yeah. Great gal. <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> Two thumbs up. But I would argue Bessie Stringfield. Oh, uh, she was also very cool. Pretty, pretty cool. Now, Bessie Stringfield is another woman who set out on her own on a bike, but she was really the first black woman to gain a, some notoriety for her motorcycle riding. And this is also in the 20s. All this stuff is happening in the 20s. Women are just nuts about motorcycles, <laughs> apparently. So now, Bessie Streamfield, a.k.a. the Motorcycle Queen of Miami, she uh, traveled cross-country solo, the first uh, African-American woman to do that. At the age of 19, she went through all the lower 48 states in the 30s and the 40s. And, you know, it's not an easy time to be traveling cross-country, a single woman on her own. She's encountering racism, bigotry, sexism. Um, and then World War II comes out, and she is one of the many women who volunteers to join, like, motorcycle dispatch units of armies. There were a lot of women who worked as motorcycle couriers uh, during World War II. So it's it's a sort of, that's sort of, I think, a, a peak time in American history for women and motorcycles. Yeah, because we don't think about that aspect of uh, of World War II, of these women on motorcycles like Bessie Stringfield, you know, zipping around with saddlebags full of classified documents, you know, keeping the wartime effort going on the home front as well. And Harley Davidson obviously played a big part in the war. They donated tons mm-hmm. of motorcycles to the war effort. And so they, there's a, there's sort of a discussion about how when those, when those people came home from World War II and they wanted to, you know, get some, get some stress out, they'd go back to their bikes. And that was sort of when, you know, a lot of men rode bikes just for long distances. And what we have in 1947 is a pretty famous act, a pretty famous incident that, uh, I think starts to turn the tides about what motorcycles mean in our society. Yeah. It starts to take on the, the darker, more rebellious connotation that we have with motorcycles. So July 4th, 1947, Hollister, California. I remember it well. I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. Basically, these people had had a little party. It was 4th of July. It was the 4th of July. It was two years after the war ended. Yeah. yeah. People are happy. 
but they get a little too crazy they with the bikes. Little, they get a little rowdy. So some people have some motorcycles, got some motorbikes out there. And so they start, they get, start getting a little rowdy and motorcycles get involved. Molly, what exactly happens? Well, they start racing down the main drag. They start doing all these donuts and wheelies and a few people start to drive straight into the local bars and saloons without getting off their bikes, which obviously is quite, quite a rowdy thing to do. Water balloons and beer bottles are just raining down from windows. Like it is, it's kind of mayhem and the San Francisco Chronicle covers it pretty extensively. Lots of pictures of just damage and the police officers just sitting there crying at all the things they can't control. And uh, it got in Life magazine, and it just, it really was the beginning of this brand of motorcyclists as these dangerous outlaws. And of course, all the people on the picture, all the people in the pictures are men. So I think that also is a big turning point in terms of motorcycles becoming a very um, male-associated thing. And that a year later, Harley-Davidson, as I said, all their ads start featuring men in the driver's seat and women only in the back, despite this history of women in World War II and women doing all these cross-country trips. I think 1947 with the Hollister incident and then 1948 with these ads changing kind of spells the end of women and motorcycles. Well, the end of women and motorcycles for a little while because, of course, Hollywood picks up the cue from this Hollister incident and they actually make a movie version of that fateful day in the 1954 classic, The Wild One which is basically followed up by all of these kind of B-biker flicks. And then, of course, we have Rebel Without a Cause. And it creates this cultural perception of guys on bikes as these rugged, rugged outlaws who live outside the bounds of society. Easy, easy Rider. Easy Rider. Of course, we have Easy Rider. And the women as reflected in the Harley-Davidson advertisements, are sort of just beautiful accessories. Mm -hmm. The guys are on these gorgeous bikes, and they've got gorgeous girls behind them. So we've got these two images of the male motorcyclist in the United States. We've got, as Kristen said, these people who are outlaws, and we've got, you know, maybe a clean-cut fella with his lady on the back of the bike, maybe trying to be dangerous. But, you know, the real the real danger, the real appeal is with the outlaws, like the Hells Angels. And, uh, you know, Kristen, when we were researching this, wanted to find, you know, maybe an outlaw gang of women motorcyclists. There's, Did, there's not one. Didn't happen. But so we did come across a pretty interesting paper about, uh, motorcycle clubs and women's roles in them by M. Shelley Connor. And guess, guess what the source of this paper was, Kristen? Oh, this is the best journal title ever. I think we're going to try and use this journal in every podcast from now on. Somehow. The International Journal for Motorcycle Studies. Yes, people, it exists. Is the source for this. Um, and the, the title of the article that we're going to go through just kind of briefly is First Wave Feminist Struggles in Black Motorcycle Clubs. And she goes through a few of the books that have been written about female motorcyclists because as Harley has appealed to the more, they have become a more prominent thing. There are a few history books about women in motorcycles that'll go over the stories of women like Hotchkiss and Stringfield. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Connor makes the point that all of the motorcyclists that you see about in these books are white. It's a very white hobby, a very, a hobby that's associated with white people. And she is a member of a black motorcycle club in Chicago. So she's just writing from her own experience, um, modern day as a black woman in this motorcycle club. And so even within the motorcycle community and these outlaw clubs, there's a race divide. There's these white motorcyclists, there's these black motorcyclists. 
you know, there were no black men trying to get into the Hells Angels. Yeah. And we should say, too, that uh, when we're talking about outlaw clubs like the Hells Angels and this club that um, the study author is a part of. And outlaw means that they have no affiliation with the American Motorcyclist Association. So these are more of the renegade groups, not the people who are going to the Harley Davidson garage parties and learning how to pick up their bikes on the weekend. Oh yeah, this is, you know, she writes that outlaw clubs claim that outlaw are one percenter image, which is based on a claim mistakenly attributed to the AMA that 99% of all motorcyclists are good, decent law abiding citizens. It is the remaining 1%, the outlaws, that are responsible for the motorcycle's sinister image. Yes. That's a quote from her paper. So, and she, and even in this paper, she was saying that she, you know, she can't reveal any, any identities, because it's sort of like these, these secret groups, secret, motor, secret motorcycle gangs. And she writes about, you know, women were really active in these early years of motorcycling. World War II, Motor Maids was this, uh, motorcycling organization that wanted to get women involved in the 1940s. And so she traces how that 1948 divide happened. But within, like, let's take out just the race divide and within these black clubs that she has experience with because they formed their own, not being able to get into the Hells Angels. Mm -hmm. She says the women, you know, are sort of subjected to uh, a reversal of all that feminism, first wave feminism worked to achieve. And they kind of have to go in knowing this, knowing that they're either going to be a property of the club is how she describes it. Like you're basically seeing in the back, the, the outlaws are in charge of you. You, you're, I guess a groupie would be the way to. Yeah, I mean, you kind of, you kind of know your place. Like she recounts uh, one woman's experience in the club where they were about to go to a club dance, I believe, and this guy comes up to her and says, "Hey, babe, ride with me." And she doesn't want to ride with him because he's acting kind of sketchy, and so she indicates to him that she is property, essentially, of the club's president, and so he leaves her alone. Now, there are women who become what she calls associate members, and this is instead of being like a full-fledged rider of the group, you're just kind of there, like maybe you'll ride your bike, but they're not really going to respect you because you're a woman. And she was talking about going to a club meeting where, you know, someone who was her friend was saying, don't talk, you know, they're not going to listen if you talk. Just If you want to say something, just tell me, I'll say it. How these women are, if they're going to be writers, must be seen and not heard. Well, and we should say, too, um, when she's talking about uh, these clubs, uh, Hell's Angels, obviously the big, best-known outlaw motorcycle group. But then in 1959, we have the East Bay Dragons MC, which is one of the oldest black motorcycle clubs that was modeled after the Hell's Angels. And they just flat-out prohibited women from becoming members. Mm -hmm. So really, their only option was to get in through this kind of, I guess, sex object sort of way of being, serving more as property and accessories to these men and their bikes. And I think that's sort of the larger argument that's being made in this paper is that I think when you see how Harley markets motorcycles to white women, that it's all about freedom and, you know, mm-hmm. you in the open road and the wind in your hair and you don't need, uh, you know, to ride behind the man. You're, you're riding for yourself. Whereas in this outlaw community, in the black outlaw community, women are not treated like that at all. It's nothing about freedom in the open road. It's more about you're going to be property, you're going to be seen and not heard, and how it just really is um, an interesting you know, race divide that's happening within the motorcycle community. But at the same time, I would say that you'll find the same kind of uh, gender dynamic in white outlaw communities like Hell's Angels as well. There was an article or a study, I should say, in the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography that I couldn't find the entire uh, study, but still the abstract pointed out that 
biker women are a lot like street gang girls in terms of their relationship to the men in the groups, because a lot of times in these earlier gangs, like in the early days of Hell's Angels, women were, quote, simply partners and parties and hedonistic sexuality. Whereas today, it seems like their role has evolved somewhat in these outlaw gangs, at least according to this ethnography study, uh, to where while they still have more of a submissive role in the group, they are expected to participate more in the economic pursuits of going out and making money for the group or carrying out what ki- whatever kind of crazy motorcycle gang shenanigans are going to pull off. And, you know, since outlaw communities are, you know, I think a small part of this, I guess let's pull back out and look more at um, the bigger picture. Yes. Because we promised we talk about married women and why that's important. And, you know, one, but one last thing on outlaw communities. I do think that one way that, um, motorcycle companies are effective at selling motorcycles to women is to emphasize sort of the social aspect. Yes. Like you all go riding together with your friends. Um, they were, we were reading something about how, um, there's this one motorcycle group that their symbol is a quilting square. <sighs> and instead of like riding to bars or wherever men go when they ride motorcycles, they ride to like craft stores. Uh huh. And, uh, have tea. Like it sounds, re- I'd really like to be in that motorcycle <laughs> group. But, um, I do think that social aspect, uh, has been really successfully employed in terms of getting women to, um, to get into this. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, researcher named Carol J. Ouster investigated when she wrote a paper called Transcending Potential Antecedent Leisure Constraints, which is a very, I have to say, Carol J. Ouster, a very dull title for what your study was actually about, which is why women overcome all these, you know, gender stereotypes about mass, about motorcycles being so masculine to actually ride them their, the, themselves. And so she, uh, polled a lot of 453 women members of the American Motorcycle Association as to why they started riding. And freedom and independence was the number one reason. Outdoors, fresh air and nature was number two. Fun and pleasure was number three. So those are some reasons why women are starting to ride motorcycles. But she wanted to know if the reason these women started specifically was because they were exposed to them in other realms of their life. Because as you point out, Kristen, People adopt motorcycle riding pretty late. 42 was the median age. Yeah, a lot of the women start riding later in life. And as the dull titled survey found, a lot of the women were first exposed to motorcycles through their husbands. Right. 90% of the people in this survey had been a passenger on a motorcycle before becoming an operator of a motorcycle, which I don't, I bet that's not true for men. I bet men sort of just go straight into driving it. Um, but yeah, these women by and large have been exposed by either a husband, a brother, or a father to ride motorcycles and husband being the most significant category. So it's, you know, you get married and you do something together. But if Harley could have its druthers these days, it wouldn't want that to be the case. They want women to start riding of their own accord because right. they, you know, they created this super low bike. They're obviously trying, trying, trying to get our attention and to get us on bikes and, Forget the men. They can have these garage parties where it's women's only. You know, it's like the, you know, today's like Tupperware party or something. Well, and another thing that I really like about motorcycle riders in general is just how much charity work they do. You're always seeing motorcycle rides for something or other. And I think that's another way that women can kind of get together and and get comfortable riding with each other. Well, you know what I've been hearing throughout this podcast is uh, I think there's, I think there's a little, uh, 
little inner biker in you. A little inner biker in me. And I would like to I see don't know. That come I, out. I'm the one who wants to ride in the sidecar. <laughs> so Molly, I. 90% start as passengers before they get as operators, Kristen. <sighs> well, if you trust me enough to ride the bike, Molly, that's, that means a lot. Well, that, I do trust you, Kristen. Well, you know what, Molly? I think that we need to go get back to planning our cross country motorcycle road trip. I can't wait. So let's wrap things up and hey, write us in. Women on bikes, we want to hear from you. And, you know, it's probably been clear throughout this podcast, Kristen and I are not motorcycle experts in terms of riding them. Yeah, I've got... I I haven't felt the wind through my hair. I've got an awesome eight-speed Schwinn. It's great, but... So, uh, So let us know what we missed, what you think about when you're riding your bike. Do you face gender stereotypes? Are people surprised to see you on your bike? What's the deal? What's the deal? May I close with one last anecdote? Of course. Quickly. Uh, best first date move guy ever pulled took me on his bike. Oh, I, I don't, I don't know if I could trust a guy on the first date to take me on his bike. You know, I was, I was pretty scared, but guys out there, I'm just saying, if you got a bike, it, uh, you can pull some charm points with that. Oh my, no, not with this girl. <laughs> I need to make sure you're very trustworthy and responsible for I'm getting on a bike with you. <laughs> and always wear your helmet. Absolutely. Always wear your helmet because that was one last, one last tidbit. Of all of the uh, traffic accident statistics involving motorcycles, like 90% of them, it's all men. Be careful out there, men on your bikes. Women are far more cautious on their motorcycles and safe. Right. So wear your helmet. And now for listener mail. I have one here from Caitlin, and she writes in uh, about a story in current events that she thought we might be interested in. She writes, the National Women's History Museum was founded over a decade ago and has since been fighting Congress to purchase land on the National Mall. Apparently, this past year, the proposed bill to purchase land from the government was passed in both the Senate and House of Representatives. However, two senators, Jim DeMitt and Tom Coburn, from South Carolina and Oklahoma, respectively, put a hold on the bill. I'm from South Carolina, so I find this especially tragic. Apparently, the Concerned Women for America were concerned about how pro-abortion rights would play into the museum and asked the senators to put the hold on the bill. Also, the senators have put out a statement claiming that a National Women's History Museum would replicate a number of women's history museums all over the country, like a lilac garden, a cowgirl museum, and a quilt museum. She writes, seriously, it's clear how much a priority American women's history is to this country, don't you think? So it seems she writes that the bill will have to be re-proposed with the new Congress after the midterm elections, which is just sad. So if you guys want to track this story, I think it's pretty interesting. Write your congressperson if you feel pretty strongly about it. I'd go to a women's history museum on the mall. Absolutely. So thank you, Caitlin, for letting us know about that. And if you want to write in about motorcycles, current events, or anything else, you have a lot of options. You can write us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can write on our Facebook wall and start discussions there. You can drop us a line on Twitter. Our handle is momstuffpodcast. And you can visit our blog, which is at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. 
Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. 